Welcome to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. It's time for another cheery episode of Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Welcome to the program. I've got a feeling you're going to start speaking to me in French, Mr. Hillier. Actung. <laughs> that will be German. <laughs> Not that my French is much better. I know two words. I know the French words for door and ruler. That's about, as, that's about as much as I took in at school. Door, door and ruler. <laughs> door and ruler. Two words that in French would just be so handy if ever we go to Paris. Probably two more French words than you yeah. know. Open the, you know what, <laughs> merci, beaucoup. Measure it with a you know what. <laughs> yeah, so you're able to say open the door and, and measure yeah. this. You'll see why. Um, we're, we're, we've got a bit of a French theme because, <laughs> running today. Well, our food poll is uh, is creme brulee. Oh, yes. Or sticky dough. Sticky date pudding. pudding. So uh, a few people on the uh, on the responses, as you'll hear later, have gone off into a little bit of the uh, the tongue of the French. They have indeed. Wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's four <laughs> words now. Gee whiz. <laughs> We're just racking them up here. But haven't we got a terrific guest oh. on the show this week? I've long been um, a big fan of Fast Ed on uh, Better Homes and Gardens. I have too, and you'll find out why late in the interview. Yes, but always just from his TV presence, I've always thought, well, he looks like a really just nice, affable bloke. And I hoped that um, when we got to meet him ourselves, he would be exactly the same. And you know, it took me ages to find <laughs> out the correct pronunciation of his surname because no one calls him by his surname. His name is Ed. Helmagi. Yeah, everyone just says Fast Ed. Yeah. I, I, look, I reckon I watched 20 interviews and everyone said, oh, g'day, Fast Ed, how you going? G'day, and so Fast you Ed. finally found a video in which he said it himself. But yeah. then again, when he answered the phone, when we spoke to him, it was, g'day, Ed Helmagi. Yeah. yeah, no, he's a, he's a terrific he bloke. He is. Um, talk about a man of many talents. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all sort of pride ourselves on being able to multitask, but this bloke's a, you know, TV presenter, a chef, an author, a photographer, a radio host, a qualified beekeeper. He, uh, he's he, got his toe in many uh, oh, ponds. Absolutely. And uh, he started his culinary journey from a very early age, as we'll find out. Yes, he did. And started his uh, television and media career uh, on a milestone. It's a milestone mm-hmm. for him. So we'll get uh, get stuck into all that and then get into the creme brulee or the <laughs> sticky date pud. That's all coming up here on Food Bites. Here's, uh, here's Fast Ed. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier. Hey, Ed, thank you so much for doing this. And if I'm not mistaken, you're uh, heading into something of a milestone year. This is your 20th year coming up, I believe, with Better Homes and Gardens. Yeah, yeah. It's called grandfatherhood in television. <laughs> um, you know, if you ever really want to feel old, just remember that for a fact. Uh, you know, but then again, you know, I, I'm, I have the privilege of working with people who've done it far longer than myself. So um, I, I think you'd have to... Someone did tell me not too long ago that when you take the cast of Better Homes and Gardens as a whole, it's the, I don't know if you call it the oldest or the longest serving collectively. Oldest doesn't sound right, but yeah, we've all been around a while, so it's great. (laughs) It looks to the viewer as though you all get on like a house on fire. Is that the case in real life? Well, one would hope it's not actually like a house on fire. That is one of the strangest expressions in the human language, I would think. Yeah, you're right. Holy crap. Um, actually, speaking of which, I'll tell, I'll tell you a funny little incidental story. About oh, maybe 10 years ago, Tara Dennis and I, we turned up for a shoot um, uh, on the lower north shore of Sydney, and we started waiting outside for the producer and the camo, and suddenly we looked across the road and there was smoke coming out of, of, the, the, um, of the tiles on the roof. And so we go over to see what's going on, 
And I kid you not, Tara and I had to rescue a lady and her son who'd passed out from smoke inhalation um, out the window. That was one of my great moments. So on that day, Tara and I really did get on like the proverbial house on fire. Oh, my goodness. That was something. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say to whoever produces the local newspaper, not a bloody word. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that changed because now we break big stories on Food Bite, so that's our exclusive. Indeed, indeed. Mind you, if you'd been responsible for the fire, like if you'd been (laughs) cooking and it started the fire, you would be on the front page. Uh, Yeah, and that I also know from experience. Um, Some years ago, I I went out to Bathurst uh, to officially open the new Bunnings warehouse there, and I had asked staff to line the barbecues with a thing called uh, fat salt. It's on the shelves. It's vermiculite clay. But as a shortcut, they they used some absorbent from the trade desk for, you know, when you have an oil spill. But that's compressed paper (laughs) particle. Um, And when you're doing pork roast for, you know, 400 people, it can be an issue because all the pork fat drips down into the tray. Eventually, we had 10-foot flames under an 8-foot gazebo, uh, full-store evacuation, eight fire trucks, the regional commander, the police, the ambos, and, of course, the local newspaper. And so the front page the following day was me in that classic you know, that classic photo with your hand out to block your face. Yeah. Um, TV chef sets fire to brand-new hardware store. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, try living that one down. Never a dull moment. So I mean, no, no. these these types of uh, adventures are they what uh, keeps you keeping on with the show? Uh, no, look, I guess for me, uh, the reason I I do television, the reason I continue to do it, is very much the same thing that motivated me and continues to motivate me in my cooking adventure uh, outside of media. Um, my fundamental philosophy in running a restaurant is that it's you're not in the food business, you're not in the drink business, and you're certainly not in the um, beautiful space business. You're in the hospitality business. And your job's not done until the customer is happy. Um, it's something which, to be honest, a lot of young chefs and even a lot of older chefs just don't seem to get. And it's a shame because we're not really there to make food. That's just... Food's like a language, you know, and, and you know, in as much as in media we might speak through photography or through video or through narration, uh, or you know, I write articles. But in in a restaurant situation, the food is the language for pleasure. Um, it's not the end goal in and of itself. Like you can serve up the most extraordinary food, but if people have a crappy time, mm. it kind of doesn't matter. Um, and so. Yeah, I always say to people, you know, do it, do it for the hospitality, and that's still the thing that motivates me. When I can run into a, uh, a, a young family who, you know, watch the, our show on a, a Friday night together, and they talk in effusive terms about what a great time they have as a unit. You know, mums and dads, you know, school-age children. One thing they can all agree on to watch. Yeah, that's as much motivation as I need. It's more about the experience than the food, is what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Like, I've always said, not owning and running restaurants, I always said to the staff, um, if someone comes in in a, you know, average or slightly poor sort of a mood, you can make them really genuinely happy. And that's actually your job. I mean, if someone comes in in a completely crap mood, you can't fix that. They're not going to respond to anything. And to be honest, at that point, it's on them. Um, people need to remember that when you go out to a restaurant, you need to bring something to the table too. It's not just the food and the drink arriving. You've got to bring a little bit of the atmosphere. We can't do that all for you. We can help you, but we can't do it for you. Um, 
And provided people come with a, a reasonably good attitude, our job is to make you genuinely happy, whether it's through you know what's said, the view you're looking at, the flavours, the, the wine, more wine, more wine, <laughs> whatever, it, whatever it happens to be, you know? Yeah, it's so, amazing because hmm. I know we've had this experience where we've gone to restaurants where the food isn't the best food we've ever had in our life, but the, the actual restaurant is just a great place to go to and a place that we've walked out of feeling happy even if we haven't eaten the best, we won't, don't rate the meal as the best meal we've ever had in our life, but the experience was just, you know, it, 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 it worked for us. I am actually going to take that a step further, and it's interesting that in just the, the last little while, uh, Rene Redzepi, who you know is an avatar of, of food, one of the great inspirations for chefs the world over, has just announced that he thinks uh, the era of fine dining has come to a close because people aren't prepared to pay for it, and the cost of labour is too high. Uh, and he's quite right. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with him more. But I, I've had this sense for a long time that for myself, the things that I really remember, treasure, and want to experience again are places where I've had a great time. Um, you know, and mostly, to be honest, for me, they're not overly complicated places. Yeah, I'll go out for a, you know, an expensive-ish, I don't have that much money, um, <laughs> um, you know, highly complicated uh, work of art sort of a meal. I do that. I, I mean, I think in my business you have to. But they're not the ones I remember or really treasure. The ones I remember and treasure are the, the times I've been out with people I like to a place that is fun. Sometimes the food's amazing and sometimes the food can be just plain challenging. I actually went to a, I went to a Nigerian restaurant um, in Newtown about what was it, six months ago. Um, and I don't know anything about Nigerian food, which is why I wanted to go there. And I said to, this, to the waiter, who's this lovely guy, I said, look, I do this for a living, and I just want to try something traditional. And I had three traditional dishes on the menu. I said, uh, what about this first one? No, nah, they're, they're sold out. What about the second one? No, nah, they're sold out. The third one? Yeah, no worries. <laughs> it's a dish called Efusi. And um, wow, uh, <laughs> I got about halfway through it, and I, I just had to admit defeat. It's not that I was full. It's just that I could not manage so much as another mouthful. Um, it's made from, you know, uh, cattle skin and um, chicken gizzards and uh, pickled nose and I think they, the thing they call stink fish. Um, oh, Sounds like a bit more oh, fitting in the South African jungle. <laughs> oh, my Lord. It was, you know, I really respect this as incredibly deeply traditional cultural food mm. and it was my shortcoming, not anybody else's, but wow. But see, here's the thing. As awful as it was, and it was awful, <laughs> what a great experience. Mm. And I, I tell everybody about this because that sort of stuff is the thing I think we're supposed to do. Food is meant to invigorate us. Food experiences are meant to challenge and extend us as people. And, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Let's go back to uh, young Ed days, Ed, and, uh, and your mm -hmm. culinary journey and where it started because you did get started early, didn't you? Yeah, so um, – you know, I, don't, I don't know what the uh, the rating is on your, your podcast, but let's just say I'll be able to get away with it. I was a shit of a child. Um, <laughs> I, I really was. Um, if my son was like I was, I think I would have given up on parenting. Wow. Um, but, you know, in as much as that was the case, my father did the right thing when I was barely 14. He said to me, look, you need to go out and get a job. Um, so go for a walk and don't come home until you've got one. <laughs> 
And so I got a job as a kitchen hand originally at a little, you know, cafe restaurant thing near where we lived. It was nothing special. But it was fun, you know. It was, uh, you know, nice people and the, the work was pretty easy. I nearly cut my finger off on the first day, so I set a good standard. Um, but only a matter of months in, in the middle of lunch service, the head chef, um, whose name was Denis, a French dude, um, he, I mean, he was just perpetually drunk. I mean, he really fit the stereotype of a of a French master chef. Um, and you know, in the absence of any more beer, because the, the restaurant manager wouldn't give him any more, um, he just walked out forever, uh, like at twelve forty five. And so, in the middle of lunch service, we were going to do probably sixty covers. Um, I was left on my own, and rather than tell anyone, because I didn't know what you were supposed to do, I just started cooking. Yeah, probably okay. No one complained. But at the end of lunch, the owner comes in and he's like, uh, where's Denny? And I said, well, he left. And he said, what do you mean? Who's been cooking? I said, well, I have. It doesn't mean that hard. And so after that, he let me cook. And, you know, um, until I was 18, I wouldn't get any professional training. I eventually went and got um, an equivalency in pastry cookery, which is really my, my heart and soul. Um, but by that stage, there was no point in doing an apprenticeship. When you've already been cooking for five years, why would you go back to the start and go back to those wages? Um, yeah, so, I mean, like a lot of people in the industry, uh, I fell into it because I wanted to do it rather than had to do it. Um, and then by the time I was old enough to make sensible decisions for myself, which is sort of last week, um, <laughs> I, I sort of turned around and realized that what I had chosen for myself was such a natural fit for my personality. Um, and it did end up extending very naturally into, into media. Like I said earlier, it's about storytelling. And I think if you can tell a story through food and you have the sort of personality that can carry yourself um, with strangers, you know, telling food to people you don't know is you know, just as relevant. So putting the fast into fast ed, when did that happen that you kind of <laughs> everything you wanted to do in the kitchen you didn't want to spend hours and hours doing it? Uh, not at all. That was an ex-girlfriend of mine. That didn't work out. Um, okay, that's not true, everybody listening. Joke. No, look, what, what, I owe that to a, a, a producer who's turned out to be a very good personal friend by the name of Rowan Jacobs. He's an extraordinarily talented guy. And when I first started working in media, um, he knew that, look, my background's in one and two chef hat restaurants, working in Michelin star restaurants overseas, you know, Zag- five Zagat star places. Um, and he knew that the the stuff I, I am capable of cooking in my professional background, that's great. I can, re- I can show you some amazing flavors and stuff, but that does not translate to television mm-hmm. at all because TV has neither the time, the enthusiasm, nor the energy to be able to absorb the number of steps and processes and procedures that are involved in creating that. I mean, if you want to have little, you know, there are shows which, you know, um, you know I'm not going to name them, but uh, where they have theoretically high-end chefs doing bits and pieces, but they show you a snap of this and a snap of this and a snap of this, mm. and suddenly it's a dish. Now, that's great voyeurism. People call it food porn, but I, I, I reckon that's a pretty low-grade form of porn. Um, uh, what they're showing you is an idea of what it is rather than 
enabling you and empowering you to be able to do it yourself. So I guess I see my job as taking some of the ideas that I've learned through my professional career and making them accessible to people for whom they would not naturally fit. And so the fast part is, yes, we do try and compress the time. Not because the time needs to be compressed, but because that gives uh, kind of an emotional reaffirmation of the fact that there's ease involved. But the second part of it is that so many of the things we do on TV, well, I do on TV, they genuinely are easy. Mm. You know, it's not a matter of trying to show you how to cook a whole, you know, banquet. It's it's often just trying to show you a single thing. Like, for example, we might have a recipe where we where it's got five different steps involved, but four of them you already know. Really, what I'm showing you is one idea. And I've always been really particular about this. I don't think I have to teach you all about cooking in a single recipe. If you can learn just one thing, I reckon we've nailed it. Um, so, I, and that's why I try to really reaffirm that. Um, when people ask me, I always say, I'm not here to show you what to cook. I'm sh- here to show you how. Yep. So I'm much more interested in a little bit of the background and culture and then a whole lot of the what is one trick you can learn that will make you a better cook and a more contented cook. Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's a good, good. philosophy, yeah, not so great. much as <laughs> like being in a class environment. It makes uh, the process more fun and watchable, doesn't it? Well, I think so, you know, um, and certainly the, the feedback over the years has been very much in that bite. Um, but I think the other, the other part of that is that um, when I, in what I do, I start off with a very genuine presumption that every single person watching has the intel, intelligence, um, the capability, and the affection to be able to do the things that we're showing them. There's a real difference between that and what a lot of uh, my colleagues in the industry do, where um, their approach is to assume that, uh, you know, this is fairly complicated stuff and you're there just to watch it. Um, Not at all. I I really, I start off with an assumption that no matter who you are, what your background is, what your interests are, you can do this, you know? And I think that faith in and respect for the audience um, is a key driver of who I am and what I try to do. Hey, um, and we uh, spoke to Joe Griggs on this podcast not that long ago, and she was mm-hmm. absolutely passionate about something that both you and she have in common, which is uh, beekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I wish podcasts had pictures. I really do, because I could show you the funniest thing. So I actually trained as an apiarist, uh, literally just as a sideline hobby when I was bored about 15 years ago. Um and that was fun. I had a great time, whatever. And we've, we, she and I have actually done a bunch of beekeeping stories along the way. Uh, although, I've got to say, these days, not so much. And the reason for that is that um, I was uh, – my other job is I, I work as a commercial photographer. And um, I was shooting a, a story for a client, um, and he needed some shots of bees. And so I went to a guy up near where I live who keeps some hives. And I'm there, and you can't to operate a camera. Obviously, you can't wear a, a mesh uh, mask on your face because you've got to look through a viewfinder. Yeah. And uh, something covered up except for that. And I got stung right on my lip. Ooh. Which, you know, whatever. It's very painful getting stuck there, but whatever. Uh, stung there. But um, 
So about 10 minutes later, my lip was the size of a sausage you might get at Bunnings. <sighs> about an hour later, it would have been a kielbasa. <laughs> and after about two hours, it looked like, I don't know, um, it looked like ha- half a bag of carrots had been taped together. <laughs> it was hilarious. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, my God. Um, and anyway... Um, I, I rang a mate who's uh, he works at Ronald Shaw Hospital. I said, "Listen, I think I'm having a reaction to this beast thing." I sent him a photo, and he just think? burst yeah. out laughing. <laughs> burst out laughing. He thought it was the funniest thing he ever seen. He said, "Look, there's nothing you can do about that. Antihistamines aren't going to help you. You just got to get a cold. Go and have a swim. Uh, you'll be right." So, wasn't that far from a from an Olympic swimming pool? And so I went in, and I dived straight in, and I come out. And there was a lady, she must have been, I don't know, late 60s, early 70s. And she's doing her, you know, water size, whatever they call it, where she's walking through the water. She's got a floral cap on and she takes one look at me and she says, and I quote, well, it bloody serves you right, you idiot. All you bloody TV types with your bloody plastic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> she thought I had skillers in my lips. was the funniest thing ever. I honestly... I'd say I wet myself, but not in a pool, people. Not in a pool. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Have we extracted some nuggets today? Uh, <laughs> hey, now I have to thank you for something because uh, because of you, I, I went and bought, oh, uh, and I'm now I think on my third uh, microwave bacon cooker. Oh. Right. Well, they work, okay, they work very well. The thing you need to know is that for best results, you want to choose a slightly fattier bacon. There you go, Ken. So a lot of people don't actually understand how a microwave works. Microwave is specifically designed um, to uh, – uh, what it does is it makes water molecules vibrate. So any wavelength will cause different things to move at whatever that wavelength is, right? And so a microwave only targets water molecules. So it pushes them against each other, and as you know, if you rub your hands together, you make friction. The problem is if it's a really lean piece of bacon and you, and you cook it in a microwave, it will tend to toughen a little bit. So splash out for the streaky bacon, and I'll tell you what, that will work wonders for you. <laughs> He's absolutely hey, addicted. All he, needs, all he needs to master now I, is the perfect poached yeah, egg to I, go with it. <laughs> I'm of the opinion that Oh, my God. Can I, can I give you the one, two, three on a perfect poached egg? Please, Literally please. Forget everything you have ever learned. Um, this, you know, vinegar in the water, swirling the water, oh. it's all bollocks. You don't <laughs> need to bother with that. The two things you need to know is if you do not have the freshest eggs possible, don't bother. It is not worth it. And if you want to know whether your egg's fresh or not, you don't need to crack it open to do that. Get a bowl of water, cold water, and put your egg into there. If the egg sits um, perfectly horizontal to the base, that is a fresh egg, a genuinely fresh egg. If it sits at 45 degrees, yeah, it's all right, but you wouldn't bother doing a poachy with it. Uh, that would be for boiled eggs. Never try and boil a really fresh egg. You'll never get the shell off. Um, so for, that would be for boiled or fried. If it sits upright, that's perfect for baking and particularly for meringue. And if it floats, chuck it out. Otherwise, you are going to go and have a little chat on the porcelain telephone. Um, so you want to make sure it's a really super fresh egg for poaching. You want to crack it. I very rarely do this, but for poached, you should into a little glass, right? Only because it's easy to get into the water. What you wanted to get is a non-stick frying pan. It should be at least 
five centimeters deep of water. So in other words, when you put the egg in, the water will cover it. You need to bring it up to heat so that there is the barest, tiny little bubble starting to appear on the bottom. None of this, you know, rolling simmer or any of that bollocks. No, no, no. Poaching, and if you've got a digital thermometer, poaching is supposed to be 82 degrees. So, you know, you can actually buy um, one of those infrared thermometers at any hardware store these days um, for about $40, and it's a good investment the last 10 years. Um, So 82 to 84 degrees is what you're looking for. You literally, as gently as possible, let that into the water. Walk away. That's it. Come back in eight to ten minutes. Eight to ten. Eight to ten. So here's the thing. The further you cook a protein, the tougher it becomes. Now, you all know this. It's because proteins shrink when you cook them. So, you know, as you take a steak and you put it on the grill, you know how a steak actually shrinks when you cook it? That's not just moisture coming out. That's literally the the what's called my, uh, myocilii, which is the building blocks of the fibers and the proteins, they're actually coiling up and causing the whole thing to shrink a bit. Um, the same thing happens in the egg. So the egg will actually toughen the hotter you cook it. So if you never heat it above about 89, 90 degrees, it's never going to toughen. So you'll get a white that is beautifully tender and a yolk that is barely cooked. Um, now, some people, you, you see chefs, they do that sous vide 72-degree mm-hmm. egg. Have you seen that around the place? Yeah. Have you ever tried that? No, no. Great. Otherwise, I would tell you to get a hobby. Honestly, <laughs> losers. So unimpressive. That is a great example of the massive bullshit that exists in our industry. It is not nice. It is not tasty. It doesn't feel good in the mouth. It is an utter waste of time. Um, you want to embrace food that feels like food, that, that you know, is delicious in and of its own right. Um, and by gently, 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 cooking that egg at 82 degrees in a non-stick pan. The reason the non-stick is, if you put it into a normal pan at that temperature, as the egg white coagulates, uh, it will end up sticking particularly yeah. to stainless steel, which is stainless steel out of all your pan types is the stickiest. Everything sticks to stainless steel. So cast iron's good, non-stick's good. This is going to change our lives, I think. Wow, that is uh, there that, you go. That is a, a major the change, a shift in gears of uh, of how to cook a. I, I, so I should give credit to that. Actually, um, I did develop the concept uh, independently, but based on the idea that Bill Granger many many years ago shared with the world, which was his alternative way of cooking eggs, which was um, in bain marie, so in a bowl or a pot, uh, pot of simmering water. Um, so his his uh, scrambled eggs. It take like 10, 12 minutes to cook. But as a result, that was the silkiest, most juicy, beautiful scrambled eggs. And I simply tried to apply the same principle to a poached one. I could talk to you all day, and we both could, but we're now ravenously hungry uh, for, bacon, <laughs> for bacon and eggs. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you've got some good bread to go with that. As a baker who bakes bread every Friday, uh, I've got to tell you, you better have some good bread. We've got some <laughs> sourdough from a, a local market that we uh, just picked Wonderful. up the other night, yes, so we beautiful. might go that route. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Hey, Ed, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, good luck in 2023. A big year for you uh, on Better Homes and Gardens and a big year for you personally as well. Uh, uh, all the best of luck. Thank you. You know what, guys? It's been an absolute pleasure anytime at all. You're listening to Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier.
All right, check out uh, Better Homes mm. and Gardens. That's where you'll see Fast Ed. What's, what wonderful tales from his oh, childhood. Yeah, yeah terrific. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like he was a problem child. <laughs> I, I think he described all of us when he said we were all little you-know-whats as kids because I think we all were. Yeah. Uh, let's get into our food poll for this week, though, and it is it is an interesting one. It's dessert up against dessert, and you might remember from a previous podcast episode with one Mr Craig Willis that he informed us that his favourite dessert of all time was creme brulee. Remember that? Yeah, I do. And I said to him, you have a hard toffee outer layer yep. which you smash with your spoon and you dive into the creaminess underneath. You do. And yum. It's yum. So we put uh, the creme brulee up against sticky date pudding. All right. And we'll start with Artie. Yeah, can we apologise for, <laughs> for some of the language that may be used here? Because why, why are we saying sticky date in a bogan sort of way? Well, because it's almost like an English thing, isn't it? Sticky date why? pudding. <laughs> Sticky date put. I'll have the sticky date put, please. Well, Artie will start us off and he says uh, that would be a vote for none of the above. Oh, well, thank you. Joylene says both, please. Sue Landry says she will have a creme brulee. Rebecca says neither. Rob Elliott, both. Kerry says sticky date pudding. Remember the one I made for you for your 30th birthday, Patang? How could I forget? <laughs> Was it I didn't good? get any because everybody um, devoured it before I even got a chance. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it was amazing. Thanks, Kerry. Apparently. Lisa says both. Uh, Cassandra says both. Lee says that would be a dinner out only option and then we would order one of each with Joe, his wife, and Cher. And Sylvana says I love them both and I agree with Lee. It's a dinner out option and I'd order both and then John and I would share. I don't like Uh, sharing. I don't like sharing anything when I go out. I don't like people taking my chips or my dessert. I don't mind sharing things if I don't particularly want them. I don't like it when people say, I'm, I'm not going to have any of that. And then when I order it, they say, I might just try some of that. And say, no, you yeah. made your decision. That's like that one of the, they did that and a Hungry Jack's ad or whatever it was yeah. on that. And the bloke actually recorded the person <laughs> when they said, oh, can I have some of that? No, you said you didn't want to. Oh, no, but I don't. And he played the tape. Yeah. I, I keep, did, your, keep your paws yeah. off it. You decided yep. not. So leave, leave other people's food alone. All right. So. <laughs> We digress. Sue Hosking says neither, thank you. Ooh, comes with instructions, this <laughs> podcast. Uh, Karen says sticky date for me. Lauren says sticky date pudding any day of the week. Sticky date for me, says Charlene. Tina says, oh, my God, sticky date. It is my favourite dessert ever. Julie says sticky date for sure. Glenn says, <laughs> he says dicky state mm. for me every time, Pato. Keep your private life out of this, Glenn. <laughs> Michelle, sticky date. Kim, sticky date, hands down. Tony Bennett says. Don't. Oh, sorry. Don't make me choose. That's just mean. Mm. I'm sure that was an Elvis song. Annie Tony Bennett song. says sticky date pudding, please. Uh, Davin says sticky date and vanilla ice cream equals delicious. I think you have to have the vanilla ice cream. Good move. Old Croaky says creme brulee. Oh, straight into the bin. For value and flavour, you can do no better than a portion of satisfyingly rich sticky date pudding. Why did I know old croaky would be a <laughs> sticky date pudding person? John uh, at uh, JPAPS95 says, sorry, can't split oh. them. Stuart Sutherland says creme brulee. Carol says, I prefer bread and butter pud. Oh, okay. We didn't ask. <laughs> Carol, actually. Marco says both. Uh, now, here we get into No, I'm stepping back because uh, uh, when I went to school, I did German. Achtung, uh, mein lieber Schön. You can. Uh, we did jump have into a French one. teacher called Monsieur Leon. Oh, we, we, and he taught me two na- words. His name was Mr. Leon. <laughs> it wasn't Monsieur Leon. Oh. So I'm going to have a crack at this. Jane Vaughan says creme brulee. She says pour moi. 
Merci, which I gather is for me, please. Creme yeah. brulee for me, please. That's how I literally and translate it myself. You yeah. Know. Monsieur Kevon. <laughs> well, we here. just make it up as we go along. We won't well, let we won't let facts get in the way of a good French French no, pronunciation. Absolutely not. And Miss Cat Whiskers says et moi aussi, which I I am guessing means and me as oh, well. It was a response to yeah. Jane's a little bit of French there. And shh, I'm thinking uh, that's, <laughs> that's actually good. the Twitter handle. So sticky date all the way. But now I want some. Yeah, so do I. And Sticky Date wins. Yeah, by a country mile. I can't believe it. Well, it's 70-30. I thought it would be a lot closer. Um, I know a lot of people who love uh, creme brulee. Uh, Oh, it's not something I I have a lot. When I do have it, I thoroughly enjoy it. And that might be, I reckon that might be maybe once a year. Mm, Um, mm. uh, Yeah, but uh, Sticky Date by a street. Sticky Date with a big scoop, as Davin said, of vanilla ice cream, the cold with the hot. It's super sweet. Like, it's almost too sweet. But, gee whiz, it's it's great comfort food. How do you say goodbye in French? Uh, Goodbye. Au revoir. Au revoir. (laughs) Or or rack off normie, as they normally used to say. Uh, That is uh, Food Bites. uh, Come on, (laughs) Tally-Voo. Oh, we're going to break into La Belle in a minute. So start singing Voulez-vous coucher, however that went. Someone taught me that if you go to Paris and you want to go to a bakery and order just a citron tart or something like that, all you need to say is uno, as in one, uno, citron. uh, And you get a card. Merci. (laughs) You get a card delivered. (laughs) Then you've got to pay for it. Uh, when I went to school, a citron tart had a totally different. No. Never mind. Oh no, that's we won't another. Get in. That's yes. another podcast. That's another era. That's Th- another. Well, thanks to century, Fast Ed. Actually. Thanks to Fast Ed for being uh, with us uh, and uh, check out the uh, Ed's uh, mm. appearances on Better Homes and Gardens. He's a very, very talented man, and sure his is. books. Books are good too. Yeah, and he's a good fella. And he's bacon maker. Yeah, you love his bacon. Yeah, it's a beauty. And uh, he, uh, try the poached eggs. Till next time. Bye bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Food Bites. Check out our Facebook page for recipes, tips and all the latest news. That's Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and Kevin Hillier.